Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. On the Wellbeing Rebellion today is Chris Cummings, founder and CEO of Wellbeing at Work World. Since 2014, Wellbeing at Work has been a trusted resource led by an authentic purpose-driven group of passionate people with strong values who are on a mission to make well-being a strategic priority in every organization across the world. Chris is also behind the inspiring annual Wellbeing at Work Summit event, which takes place across the globe. In his work, Chris meets with lots of businesses of different sizes in different sectors and operating in different geographies and cultures who all share a common purpose to address the well-being challenges of their workforce. With his unique insights and perspective, we couldn't think of anyone better suited to talk to us rebels about the future of workplace well-being. I can't wait to hear what he has to share. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion. Hello, Ngozi. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> it is honestly my pleasure. And I'm very, very excited to talk to you because it's rare that we get to meet anybody, a professional in the mental health and well-being space with as long a tenure. Is that the right word? As you have. Wellbeing at Work World has been going for a number of years. In fact, you're coming up to a big anniversary, aren't you? We are coming up to 10 years, yeah, in the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, I started it in 2014. It's a real honour to be here, and I always love spending time with you in Gozi. Ah, you can come again. I mean, it truly makes you a veteran of this space. And so your experience, your understanding of how the well-being discussion, and specifically workplace well-being, has evolved in that 10 years, and therefore where we're going it's going to be so invaluable for our audience to hear. Less of the veteran. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being a veteran. That just means you're really knowledgeable and experienced, okay? Okay, I'll take that. Yeah, right. I didn't say old. I said veteran. <laughs> it would really be interesting for us to know why you started. Because in 2014, nobody really gave us stuff about mental health at work did they? Wellbeing at work found me really so I was minding my own business working in the corporate world organizing international events really enjoying that apart from the commute into London and it was actually my partner has anxiety and depression and had a pretty poor experience went downhill it was because of the workplace really I was working in a toxic environment and I saw what happened as he spiraled at home and just sort of stopped me in my tracks, really. I didn't understand mental health, really. I was not a very supportive husband and I probably didn't deal with it as best as I could. But it motivated me really to have a look at what's going on in the workplace. What are we doing to our people? What are we really doing to our people? You know, all of these websites saying our people are our most important asset. And actually, the reality was very different in in that particular organization. So yeah, I quit the corporate job and embarked on setting up a movement to see if we can engage 
businesses, leaders to really change that conversation and and to place this at the heart of the the business strategy. And you're right, it was quite a challenge in those early days to get organisations to to really take this seriously. But thankfully, in the last decade, we've moved on quite a bit. So was that the aim to start a movement? What I wanted to do was first and foremost, ensure that what happened to my partner didn't happen to others. That was the catalyst, really. Many things like this happen because of personal experiences and, and you try and change the world for the better. So first of all, it was it, it was that. It was also, yeah, let, let's create a movement. Let's, let's, let's build a community of leaders and let's try and educate them. Now, back then, as I say, it was quite a challenge to get that conversation going. You know, I got called all sorts of names, <laughs> as you can imagine. Why would workplaces look after people's well-being? Why would we do that? But I think as time has progressed, we've seen really strong data, really strong evidence, and obviously a global pandemic in the middle of that as well, to suggest that actually this really is the right thing to do. And if we're looking for high-performing teams, if we're looking for engaged employees, if we're looking to attract the best talent and, and keep the best talent, then it plays a, an integral role in that. But I think back then, there were very few organisations thinking like that. So you guys started with this mission of creating a community of people who could be educated as to the importance of mental health and well-being on their organisations, not just the employees, but also the success metrics and all of that. And it started here in the UK? We started in the UK, yeah. So we had our first UK summit in 2014. Since then, it's grown, thankfully, and I had no ambitions to do anything internationally, but more and more multinationals came to our UK summit. Their colleagues wanted to, to have things in their region, so we, we started in, embarking on an uh, on international break. So yeah, it now takes place in 10 regions around the world. I'm currently here in Bogota, launching our LATAM summit this week. So yeah, it's really exciting. I had no ambitions to do that, but I think the subject travels across the world it's an important issue for every region no matter what your culture no matter what your background I think well-being at work is critical so yeah we've been really lucky in taking it internationally as well I think you're being a bit modest in terms of luck it's it's something to do with like I said in the intro your authenticity and the 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 passion that you bring to this mission is very infectious let's say so I'm not surprised at all but it would be really interesting for us to hear your take on how that well-being discussion translates so you said there's 10 different territories you operate in what are they so we're across the Americas with Canada, US and, and LATAM. In the EMEA region, we have our UK, European, Africa and Middle East summits. And then in APAC, we have India, Asia and Australia. So we've split the company into three, really, to cover those three different regions. What I like about what we've created and what was really important to me is if you are going to go global and you are going to have that consistency across the world, you also have to be uber local as well. So when you're coming in and delivering a, a summit in the Middle East, you're not just delivering the same summit that you had in the UK. You are taking that local knowledge. And we have teams in each of these regions. We don't just do everything from the UK and say, you know, that this is how we do it in the UK and this is how you have to follow. 
we actually have teams and communities of leaders within each of these regions. We spend a lot of time talking to those communities, understanding what their challenges are, and then curating the summit around that location. So I'm really conscious of not being one of those people that just parachute themselves into the from the UK into a region and, and tells people how to do things, because I, I don't think that's respectful and I don't think that's valuable. So we really work hard. And, and like I say, I'm here in South America now, spending time having lots of meetings, understanding the culture, understanding the challenges here to really deliver a strong event. How does that transfer? Well, well, look, we're all human beings. Human beings have the same needs. There are elements that you can easily transfer. And then there'll be those local challenges. So, for instance, in the Middle East, the maternity leave is very different to the UK. And that was a big topic that was discussed around how do we encourage women back into the, the workplace in a more supportive environment. Here in Colombia, there's various labour law changes that are happening at the moment. So it's really challenging the workplace. So we're reflecting that in our agenda here. There'll be those local nuances, those, those local challenges, but we try and give the leaders that attend our events a similar experience. So whether you're attending an event in Manchester or in Sydney, you're going to have an amazing experience. You're not going to be bombarded with PowerPoint. You're going to feel welcome and inclusive in a safe environment. You're going to have healthy food. You're going to have energizers. You're not just going to talk about well-being. We're going to experience it as well. And hopefully that's reflective across the world. Well, I can certainly attest to my experiences, which have now I've been to three of your events, and they've all made me feel very, very much like I'm with like-minded people who get it, who genuinely care, who aren't here peddling something, but who are here because they want to change something. So yeah, I'm sure that is absolutely true. I would like to know, because you you touched on some of the differences that you see in the topics of interest different in Latin America as it is in the Middle East, as it is in Europe. What are the commonalities that you can see across these territories? What's the one thing that everybody wants to know? I think everyone wants authentic leadership in their organisation because without authentic leadership, we really can't make wellbeing at work really work. We need to work on cultures within the organisation. So I, I see an organisation is a group of individuals, so a community in itself. So if you can create uh, that culture that is inclusive that allows people to be themselves, that supports each other within an organisation, then well-being in the workplace can really thrive. And underneath that banner, you know, obviously you've got equity, you've got diversity, inclusion within an organisation, but allowing people to be themselves and allowing people to put their hand up and to say, I'm struggling here, the workload is is too much or, 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 or I'm struggling with this particular project. Uh, if you can create that culture and have leadership that say from the top, this is how we're going to behave in an organisation. I think that transfers across all regions. And then you start getting into those local nuances. It's allowing people to bring their true selves to the workplace, to do the best that they can, but to also raise their hands, ask for help and receive it when they need it, because they're being led 
by people who are authentic and genuine when they say we care and they are working in a culture that supports that. You've said it much better than me. <laughs> yeah, and that's because I, this is what I'm saying to you rebels all the time. That is the key. That's why Aurora is no longer just mental health and well-being. It's culture change. It's because this is the only way that you can do it is to say what you mean and mean what you say and make sure everything that you do doesn't make it harder for that to be the case. You know, everything that you do supports you being that genuine workplace employer, whatever it is. Absolutely. If I look at my own situation as an example, I can talk authentically about my own personal experiences. My performance, my output, my impact in the last 10 years has been the best it has ever been in my whole career. Why? Because Hopefully, I've created an internal culture within our organization that allows me to be my authentic self, but everyone else to be their authentic self. So, you know, we have all different types of people working in our team. Some have young kids that need to go and pick up the kids up from school. Some will work different hours that work for them. You know, there's all different types of arrangements. Nobody has the same arrangement because it's a personalized approach. But we deliver and the impact that we have and the performance levels from the whole team. And I think that's the crux. If anyone's looking at this saying, oh, okay, yeah, look after your people. It's all the right thing to do. And we really care about our people. No, look at the performance levels. You know, look at, look at what is being achieved. And I think looking ahead, I think well-being is the key to high performance. If we create the right environment for people to thrive, if we really are a supportive environment and allowing people to be themselves, they're less likely to struggle. They're less likely to be absent. They're more loyal to your organization and they will go above and beyond what their job description says. That's what I've seen in, you know, we're a case study as an organization. We practice what we preach. So I can see the performance levels are outstanding in the team because we've done that. So for all those CFOs who are looking at this and saying, oh, okay, well, it all sounds a bit fluffy to me. Well, actually, if you want high-performing teams, this is the way to unlock it. So, yes, it's the right thing to do. Yes, it's it ticks a lot of boxes on a human level, but it ticks the right boxes on the financials as well. And you're backed up by every single piece of research to come out of any Western territory in the last three to five years they all say the same thing whether it's McKinsey or Deloitte or even god bless it our NHS everything points towards this being the truth and it's because like I say if you feel better you can do better it's really not complex but there seems to be some challenges we were talking about this before we started recording with getting organizations to put their money where their mouth is, particularly in this current economic climate where investment funds have, have really been under pressure and CFOs are having to, to be very careful about where they invest any discretionary spend. And obviously us in the wellbeing space, we're going to say, well, we invest it in us. Why not us? But 
it is definitely something that we are finding more challenging is that people understand that mental health is important for employee success and organizational success, but they're not able to invest in what is we call the transform transformative change. So the larger scale investment projects that are needed to create the culture. So it becomes a almost a lip service thing. And I find that really difficult, a difficult space to occupy where I'm a professional in this space. And I'm telling you that, like you said, authenticity is key and you need to have a supportive culture. And that is not going to be cheap or quick or easy. And our audience are nodding fervently and then going and doing the very bare minimum or even worse, asking us to deliver the maximum, but for a penny, <laughs> you know, and you think, no, it's not <laughs> my well-being counts too. <laughs> I have bills to pay as well. So if, from that perspective, how do you see that impacting on workplace well-being interventions? going forward. I want to pick you up on on just a small part of what you just said, discretionary spend. Mm. I don't think well-being is discretionary spend. Can you say it a bit louder, um, Chris? Say it again. <laughs> so I don't think discretion, uh, well-being at work is discretionary spend. And, and, and I go back to the point, <laughs> I go back to the point I said earlier, if I talk from a UK perspective, how many times over the last 10 years have governments, have business leaders said, we need to raise productivity. Productivity is stalling. We're not growing as an economy. Why do we think that is? Is, is it because we've got really bad processes internally in, the, in, in organizations? I think most organizations have spent a lot of time on their processes and developing more productive, using technology to work faster, to be more productive but the productivity levels are still stagnant. So as business leaders, now if someone turned around to me and said, Chris, you can grow your business by 20% next year. These are some of the things that you need to do. A bit like when an organization, say a printer, if they buy this super duper new printer, it's going to be 10 times quicker. So it's gonna be more productive. If, if you invest in that printer, and you see the results, that's fantastic. And I think you wouldn't say that printer was a discretionary spend. It's a core spend for that business to, to be more efficient. And that's exactly how I see well-being in the workplace. It has to be on a strategic level from the leadership. It has to be at the core spend, not just something you tick some boxes, host a couple of webinars and think that you've done that you know, we're done here. It has to be transformative. It has to be strategic. And we have to move away. I think it was a discretionary spend during COVID when we did some short-term support for our people, which was understandable. But taking a step back now, if we're going to really make this work because the burnout numbers are not improving, productivity levels are not improving, mental health numbers are shooting through the roof in the wrong direction, why is that? Because we're just treating it as a discretionary spend. We have to be more strategic and more comprehensive in our approach to well-being at work to really see the results. And then 
you'll see that 20% uplift. And I can vouch as a company owner with 20 people in our team, we did our own wellbeing program this year. This has been something that we've used in our own case study. And we've been quite comprehensive around looking at all aspects of the business on how we can be better and and more healthy in, in our approach. And we've seen that uplift. You know, the evidence is there. And I think as leaders, dare I say it, I think if you're not thinking about this more strategically, I would question that leadership quality. Uh, I think that's a reasonable thing to say. Frankly, we talked about it in the beginning, authentic leadership. (laughs) You can't say you Mm. care and then not show that you care. That's it. Don't tell me you love me. Show me that you love me. (laughs) In your experience then globally, are there any countries, cultures, territories that get that and understand that better than we do, that this is not something that you can opt into. It's something that's fundamental to the success of your organization. I wouldn't say it was regionally. I would say like with the UK, with any country, I think it's more around the industry or the the business itself. So there are some amazing case studies here in the UK that, you know, organizations doing some really great stuff across many different industries I think the same goes for any region in the world. I think it does boil down to that that leadership, whether leadership really value this, and that can be in any industry sector and in any country of the world. I think there's the same challenges in Australia, in America, that we're seeing in the UK. If we have organisations who have woken up leadership that have seen the data that really works and they're being proactive with it, then we're seeing great results. It did make me think, though, like there are some countries where the culture has typically always put more emphasis on things like work-life blend or balance and being healthy. I'm thinking of the Nordic countries. I don't know if you are present in those. We do have a a Stockholm event, yeah. Oh, do you? And I wonder if, if there is data... And this is me thinking out loud, and I don't want to shoot myself in the foot, but I wonder if there is data to suggest that actually, yeah, in those countries, they haven't had the same issues with mental health crises, like I feel we're, we are in, in, in the UK and in many countries in the West, that because they've traditionally always, always considered an employee's whole life. I don't know if that's true or just a stereotype, and I don't know if that's anything you've got experience of. Yeah, so I, I think... Every year, the Nordics come out as that the happiest place to live. So that, that takes in quite a comprehensive approach to people's lives. So it not necessarily focused in on the workplace. I think there are some great examples, again, in the Nordics of organizations who have taken this to a new level. But there are still some acute issues around mental health and burnout in a lot of these organizations. So if you think about some of the uh, major employers that are based in Stockholm, there are some big challenges there. I'm a big fan of the light. (laughs) There's specific challenges, certainly in northern uh, Nordic countries around what happens during the winter, because there's very little light. So as an overarching population, the Nordics do come out generally and the happiest place to live. I think a lot of stuff works there. 
the higher taxes means that lots of things get paid for and there's lots of benefits for parents and, and for individuals. But there are still major stresses in the workplace there. I think that's something that's just universal to the human experience on this planet is stress. Hmm. What's that expression? There's two things guaranteed in life. Is it death and taxes? I think there's three. There's death, stress and taxes, which doesn't make life sound very much like a picnic, does it? <laughs> <laughs> but some, some stress is good. Some stress is good. And it's around managing that. You know, I remember talking to someone around the type of work that they do. They, they do project work and it's a bit like events. So we'll have this huge effort going into leading up to an event and everyone's pulling, you know, long hours, really stressed, lots going on. But we make sure we build in time afterwards to rest, re- recover and recuperate. And we'll try and build in some, some team stuff. We might go to a retreat ourselves or we might do something after that big surge of effort. It's when you move from one to another to another to another constantly, that's when the problems start to, to rise. And, uh, and what we've seen, I think, especially this year, is this constant long hour piece. Uh, and that is starting to you know, really bite. You look at a, a sports person the best sports people if you talk to Usain Bolt about his success everyone can have the best trainers to be the fastest 100 meter runner but the the key to his success was rest and recover and mindset so we need to build that into the corporate space as well I think that's something that we are not that good at doing and partly to blame is technology because If you think back 50 years ago, if you left work, you left work. You left the ability to do any work. All the technology that was around at the time did not facilitate you thinking about something at 11.30 at night and then going and acting on it. You'd have to, you know, write it on a notepad and then drop it until the next morning, no matter how pressing it was. Whereas now, there is nothing that stops me from working on holiday, nothing that stops me from working in church, nothing that stops me from working from the toilet. I can do whatever I like, wherever I like. So unless I have a lot of self-control, it is very hard if you're in a role which is extremely high pressure and demanding, which is the vast majority of people in white collar jobs, then yeah, I feel like I can work from my lap on the laptop whilst I'm supposed to be watching Married at First Sight with the spouse. Yeah, this is interesting, but I'm actually just going to type out an email. Do you see what I mean? So it, be, it becomes harder to, to put a full stop at the end of your workday. It's much more of a, a comma. It is, it is. And I hope you're not working in the toilet too often, uh, engaged either, because it's not. <laughs> I am making no promises, Chris. What I do in the toilet is between me and my iPhone. <laughs> Look, it, it, it's tough. We know that boundaries. I've had to learn this the hard way in, uh, around, you know, working globally. My phone will not stop because as soon as one time zone goes to sleep, another one wakes up. So, you know, there's 24-7 in terms of my phone pinging. But there are times when I just switch off and, and I turn the phone off and, and it will have to wait. I guess, again, we've had that discussion internally about how and when 
we operate, what hours we operate and, and have that flexibility around it. It's really important. And I think there's a there's there's an emergence around digital wellness. There's there's been some really good content around that recently that I've seen the four day working week and and things like that. So I know organisations are looking into how we can be more flexible. I think it does boil down to flexibility. Really, I'm a morning person, so catch me at six o'clock in the morning, and I'm happy as Larry. I and I'll be productive, and I can do. Things like podcasts. If if this was at four o'clock in the afternoon, I would be useless. And, and I just know my body. I know how I uh, how I work. And so everyone knows that in the organisation. Everyone understands that. And, and they're not going to send me some deep terms and conditions document at five thirty in the afternoon and expect a response that evening because that, that's a morning job for me. So I think it's understanding your team and understanding how they work best and uh, and being able to manage that accordingly. Funnily enough, that's what we teach when we are empowering <laughs> these authentic leaders because that's that's how it works, right? What works for Chris is different to what works for me. So for me, it might be actually I work I exactly for Obi, uh, I know she works best in the evening. I if I want to, I will send her stuff at 11 p.m. She will give me the best response. I've sent her horse poop at 11 p.m. because by then I am knackered, <laughs> absolutely knackered. So you need to be able to agree a degree of flexibility between you. Now, that obviously becomes much trickier when you're scaling up to a, a team of 20 or a team of 50 or a department of 150 or a business of 700. But that's kind of how you you have to operate if you want to get the best out of your people is as far as is practicable, have a degree of flexibility, give and take. That's where line managers come in. Whatever the size, it can still work because your line manager is managing that team and that's where the flexibility sits within that team. So whether you're 700 or 50,000, that's where that line manager really comes into play. It's just made me think of something, actually, Chris. And that is, we, over the last, uh, I'm just making a guess here, again, 30 years in business world, we're thinking about things like streamlining and using technology to require lower headcounts. And that's possibly why we're in the situation we are now, where line managers are under so much pressure because we assumed that, with the advent of technology, we wouldn't need as much of the fat as they would have been called. So, I mean, we've both been in businesses for long enough to know when they they are streamlining organizations and removing positions. Line managers were, were actually people who have what would effectively be at least a full-time role. And then they had management responsibilities on top because that's not going to take up too much time. And now it seems like, actually that was a mistake or that or at least the way the world is now it's going the other way and I think you should have line managers who spend the bulk of their time facilitating other people to do the work to the best of their ability that's how you're going to get more productive and not relying on each individual to just follow a set of prescriptive rules and 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 just make it work because that's not working well line managers should be coaches in my view, coaches don't tell you what to do. 
they allow you to flourish and provide the environment for you to flourish. And I think that's the skill set we need in line management these days. And coaches, you know, I, <laughs> I, I couldn't live without my coach. She's transformed my life and hopefully I've taken some of that and brought that onto the team as well and, and not be so hands-on and micromanaging, which unfortunately still uh, consists, uh, exists a lot today. But uh, if, if we change, I, I was talking to a big professional services company recently and they are rolling out an entire new approach to line management and having that focus on coaching skills instead of what we used to think a line manager should be doing and it's starting to really have impact and I think if we can if, if we can think a bit more like that then those teams will thrive and flourish. So the future of well-being at work lies in the hands of the line manager upskilling the line manager to be an authentic purpose-driven coach rather than a um, bureaucrat in my in, in my view in my view <laughs> i love it i completely agree that's, that's part of uh, the aurora 360 is that's why empowerment is the often neglected piece of the puzzle when you're looking at workplace well-being strategies that are effective that's the piece that you you need to focus on but it doesn't happen in a vacuum you can't just and i'm let me let me say this really clearly you cannot just roll out a leaders coach training program for your line managers and say, tick, job done, right? You have to create a culture that's, that supports that. So all the processes in place that make sure that your leader can act as a coach and that your employee has the, still got all the support that they need to be coached and coachable. So, yeah. I just want to make sure that that's not, oh, well, that's all we need to do is get the leaders, <laughs> yeah. leaders coaching program and then we're done. Yeah, we sorted it. No, that won't work. But it is absolutely critical, as is technology. I know I've been bashing on tech for a while, but you, you did mention that there's been a lot of digital wellness solutions. Is, are there any you can share with us? There's an organization based in North America called the Digital Wellness Institute, actually, that is helping employees have those barriers understanding the switch off and and putting those barriers in place and it's starting to really have quite a positive impact in organization there's a plethora of of digital solutions in the um in the well-being space and uh, i'll be here till next week if we needed to list them out because i think it's a big issue if i think back to my dad i remember him walking through the door at six o'clock in the evening come home from work and he spent time with his kids um and i remember that clearly every night there was the odd very odd occasion where you know he might have a, a, a major incident happening and he might be back at eight o'clock but generally speaking six o'clock was when he walked through the door and he spent time with his family that that evening that just doesn't exist now and so allowing those those boundaries and really working hard to understand how we can put those barriers in place to allow people to have that connection time with their family it's so important that's part of your well-being and to deny that I think can be really damaging what would you say were let's say the top two focuses for businesses wanting to improve their employees well-being in the workplace what would you say the two hot topics going forward will be 
I'm not sure there'll be hot topics, but I'll give you two things that I think. So first thing is listen to employees. So there's there's been so much of throwing spaghetti at the wall and then turning around and saying, oh, why are our employees not engaging with it? <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, oh, did you ask them? I'm um, only laughing because <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so ask your employees, listen, and then act on what they've they've said. So look, you can't please everyone all of the time. I know that. We do internal surveys, you know, within our small group. And some of the ideas are great, but we can't do it at that particular time. But it's something that we'll look at in the future. And that's communicated. So, you know, you've asked for my opinion. Uh, I've given it. Make sure you listen. So that would be the first thing. And then I think engagement levels will increase if you listen to employees. Uh, The second bit, I, I think, is the impact piece. If we are going to be challenging CFOs to be continually increasing investment in this area, we have to demonstrate impact and results. So we've got to find successful ways of measuring the impact and and demonstrating the value of why we're doing this. There's some great stuff out there already, but I think if we can really find those those clear messages that we can send to the C-suite and say, look, this is what's happened, this is the impact we've had, then that investment will follow and it will increase. So those are the two things I would say, if you are starting out or even as an existing programme, those are the two things that I would really focus on. I really enjoyed talking with you, Chris, and I'm sure that we could have talked forever about this, but because time is is limited, I'm going to go straight to our final question, the signature question that I ask everybody. If you had a magic wand, well, let me phrase it a different way. A certified, in fact, I'd say the original well-being rebel. (laughs) What would be the one change that you would make in workplace well-being? I think it should be a strategic priority in every organisation around the world. It's as simple as that. What does that mean, though? How would they reflect that it is truly a strategic priority? It would be discussed at board meetings and and be within the C-suite agenda. Investment would be allocated and not disrupted, depending on economic conditions. It would be a core spend like you would with any other important department like sales, marketing, operations. And it would flow throughout the organisation. So um, every touch point within an organisation would have well-being at its heart. So when we talk about onboarding, what do we do when, when we onboard a new person? We make sure well-being is prioritised within that piece. Because if we get that right in the first six or eight weeks of an employee's tenure with an organisation, the data shows that they're going to perform much better and feel a, a higher sense of belonging. And every touch point that employee goes through well-being has been considered now it's not going to touch every element of the business but it's been considered by the business Uh, and if we can get to that point we're going to have flourishing growing thriving organizations people and society so let's do it amen to that yeah (laughs) thank you thank you so much for for joining us on the well-being rebellion today chris it's been an absolute pleasure Thanks for having me. It's been really good fun. See, it wasn't as painful as you thought, was it? (laughs) 
<laughs> Loved it. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.